Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 8th, 2022. We are back from Palm Beach uh, and ready to return to our previously scheduled programming. Uh, One note, uh, happy birthday uh, to Steve Dorzak, a friend of the pod, friend of the family, friend of friend to you and me. Uh, Steve Borzak is a terrific guy and he came and I was going to wish him a happy birthday from the stage, but I couldn't uh, because there was too much going on. So there you are. Happy birthday to Steve Borzak. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And and, uh, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um. So I, there's so many things to talk about, like the fact that um, uh, Hunter Biden's uh, the Hunter Biden's business practices are uh, I, people are now looking into Hunter Biden's business practices. What what else? What else can I say? I mean, uh, we have uh, we have a Washington Post editorial on Sunday saying, you know, it's important to look into this kind of behavior. We have uh, Catherine Harridge of CBS News reporting that uh, Joe Biden's brother, Robert, um, uh, is has been sort of, it's not that he's been up to no good, but there are a lot of different little bits and pieces of detail. The fact that Biden had a key, one of four keys to, to the office that Robert Biden and Hunter Biden shared. Uh, the fact that uh, even though Joe Biden said he had nothing to do with Hunter's business, he, Joe Biden, wrote personally a recommendation letter for a the son of a Chinese businessman that Hunter was doing business with, um, and all of that. It's it it is the sort of thing that would the fact drive. That, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, more than 150 transactions uh, of the Hunter and 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 Joe Biden's brother international uh, bank James transactions Biden. were flagged by U.S. banks as right. As, That's Catherine Harridge's story, yeah. right? Yeah, 150 transactions. So um, a friend of mine just sent me an an email last night uh, saying this, which I think is a very good point. At some point, will any member of the press corps ask at a briefing, one, does the president or has the president filed any FBAR forms since he became president? Those are foreign beneficial account reporting forms since he became vice president, meaning things you have to report if you have somehow gotten some kind of benefit, either cash or not cash or a gift or something like that. From, from a foreign entity? Or do any of those forms exist? Two, if so, are those filings part of the president's public financial reporting? Three, has the president received any financial transfers from Hunter Biden? Were gift tax returns filed where applicable for those transfers? Were there any transfers as a result of, of interests held by Joe or Jill Biden or entities associated with them in business ventures of Jim or Hunter Biden? If so, what were those ent- entities and the associated transfers? These are sort of plain questions. Uh, they're pretty simple. And the interesting thing is that in the what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, if we're going to spend four years talking about uh, Donald Trump's tax returns, I see no reason. And then the entire Democratic Party structure and the liberal structure saying, no, no, it's OK. D- Donald Trump doesn't have any right to privacy with his tax returns. Because he's because he's bad. He's a bad person. And so it's okay that the New York Times publishes them this most private information uh, leaked apparently by his by his niece. 
and uh, and th- that's that that's good. That's moral. In fact, we should we should we should sponsor prosecutions based on the leak of that very private information. But uh, but are these questions going to be asked of of Joe Biden as the noose appears to be tightening around Hunter? I mean, there are there is an active FBI investigation of Hunter's business practices. Okay, but when when the spokes when the White House spokespeople are asked about this, they make it um, they're kind of continuing. They can't continue the spin that this was all Russian disinformation campaign anymore because that was blown out of the water. But Jen Psaki was recently asked by a conservative reporter, I should add, about the laptop. And her answer was both Orwellian and and sort of chilling. She says, we don't talk about the laptop. That was her response. We don't talk about the laptop. No, no, we don't talk about the laptop. But then you can't complain when everybody else talks about the laptop. You can't try to suppress the story when everybody else talks about the laptop. And I, I think they're doing themselves damage by not just coming out with a consistent principle that they're going to that they're going to talk about with the press either it's he's my son he's an adult we're not we're staying out of it because we don't want to in you know in, impose on any investigation or it's you know yeah the laptops in play we'll we'll update you with what we know i mean they're just they're just stonewalling which is what they did before the the misinformation campaign didn't work the first time around but the stonewalling if you're a liberal reporter is working they're holding that line but it, it can't be held forever look the the financial misbehavior of relatives of the president is a long-standing story and issue. I mean, let's go back. We Hunter have Clinton. Billy Billy Carter. <laughs> yes, oh, that's right. Jimmy Carter, who who was making deals with Libyans. We have, um, yeah, we have uh, Neil Bush, son of George H. W. Bush, who was involved in, um. Uh, as uh, savings and loan chicanery. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, uh, Bill Clinton's brother, Roger, uh, who did X, Y and Z. And th- so this is a this is a th- these are pre- presidents having to deal with the wayward conduct and the seductive uh, possibilities opened up by by uh, proximity to family, proximity to power is a is a longstanding uh, you know, 50, 60 year issue in the United States. And we know without question that Hunter Biden sought to parlay his connection to his father and his and 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 Robert Biden uh, seeking to uh, seeking the same or Jam- whatever his name is. I can't remember his name, his brother's name, that they were trying to use the Biden name to make hay uh, in international transactions in China and elsewhere, the question is, what did Biden know and when did he know it? And if if he if stuff was going on after his vice presidency, right, that's a separate issue because uh, he wasn't vice president anymore. He did not decide to run till he to run for president until you know uh, March of 2019. But as my friend's email suggests, the question is, did he did he receive some kind of a personal benefit? from Hunter's entrepreneurial efforts uh, and are they reported on his taxes? Um, then there's the question of what he did when he was vice president, which is a whole other, which is a whole other issue because that that's when you start getting into, in other words, there's nothing, there's not maybe untoward, but there's nothing wrong with him getting a consulting fee from his son if he helps his son out, right? I mean, his son has a business and he's going around and 
son makes money and then he does something and he gets paid. It's just a question of his son wouldn't have a business, it? but his son wouldn't have right. a business if his father you know, wasn't the vice president. But That's you know what I mean? Yeah. He's he's then in private life. He's not a public official. He doesn't have he doesn't he's not you know, he is not obliged not to do these things as a as a private citizen. It's certainly but unbecoming. I it's, mean, it's, oh, not, it's totally it's totally yeah. unbecoming. I'm not talking about whether it's becoming or unbecoming. I'm, I'm just saying that it is. It's not illegal, right? It's not. There's nothing illegal unless he didn't file the proper paperwork. If he, if he, if he received a financial benefit, now we have no that- idea. We have no reason to think that he didn't file. We don't know if he got a financial benefit, and we don't know if he filed or he didn't file because tax returns are private and personal and certain types of, you know, things could have been, I don't know. Anyway. Well, and and Delaware in particular is notorious for being exactly the place where if you have any sort of dodgy charity or any sort of dodgy LLC, where you want to keep things as opaque as possible to conduct business, that's where you, that's where you home base it right there. Delaware has a lot of interesting, uh, get arounds to, to keep opaque the owners of certain companies, the, you know, certain sorts of credit that it, it's interesting. And he's been the kind of Lord of Delaware for a very long time. So if anyone would know how to, how to kind of keep things as opaque as possible, you'd think it would be the Bidens, which is why Hunter's sort of disastrously uh, messy financial life is, is kind of sad. I mean, he, he clearly did not have good advisors. Well, I mean, on the one hand, you didn't have good, good advisors. You mean Hunter? You mean Joe? Hunter. Well, I don't know if he had good advisors or bad advisors. It appears that the millions upon millions of dollars were running through his his accounts, his, uh, you know, cockamamie companies and things like that. And still are. There was the cockamamie art show where he, you know, has private private collectors are supposedly spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy his his paintings, there is no way to look at that other than that that is some form of somebody doing Joe a favor to keep Hunter in sufficient liquidity so that he can pay his lawyers. I mean, I, you know, and, and we don't know who that is because it's a private transaction and we don't know what influence is being peddled. And this is where the family member thing gets really uncomfortable uh, and has been uncomfortable for politicians for as I said, for, for, for many decades, it is the, I, I just think, and I don't like the whole, you know, every hypocrite, you know, hypocrisy and, 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 and both sides is and all of that, but we can't spend four years talking about Trump's sleaziness and, 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 and playing fast and loose with the tax system and doing this and doing that and being dodgy and employing his daughter, his kids and his business and all of that. And then act as though there's something unseemly about talking about Joe Biden and Hunter, because, you know, his mother was in a car crash 50 years ago. I mean, it's terrible. What happened to Neela Biden is a horrible thing. And she died and the daughter died. You know, every it's just awful. It's one of the one of the worst stories that we know about. Hunter Biden (coughs) is in his sixth decade of life and is therefore. Uh, you know, you can't play the leave, leave her alone, leave him alone. He's 12 years old. Stop talking about what he looks like and making jokes on SNL about 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 his weight like that is sorry, because, you know, if it was like somebody got him a no show job for one hundred thousand dollars somewhere or other, that could be an issue. But that's like pathetic. There's nothing pathetic about the level, the numbers that we're talking about here. In relation to Hunter Biden, he was going for multi-million dollar contracts and consulting deals and spending, you know, 
clearly spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on cocaine and other substances and maintaining households all over the place and having renting, you know, wildly expensive real estate in Beverly Hills and, you know, behaving like uh, like an out of control person with the means to be an out of control person. And, you know, there are there are three periods in which he has to be evaluated and Joe has to be evaluated. Right. One period is Joe as public official, as vice president uh, and what Hunter did to try to cash in on that and what Joe knew and whether there were whether anything untoward happened there. Right. That's that's number one. Number two is the period in which Joe was not vice president and nor a senator and he was a private citizen. And did he, did he, did he have, did he gain some benefit from Hunter's business where he essentially, you know, took, took a taste, you know, he, he, he got his taste and then, or maybe it's four periods. And then third is when he is a candidate for the presidency. And then fourth is now as president. And, and, and that is being looked into. Well, we know about the third to the extent that Joe Biden was not forthcoming about, about, uh, what he knew. We don't know the extent of what he knew, but when he said, I have no knowledge of my son's business dealings, that was not true. Right. Right. And, and um, again, like, you know, one of the reasons this is the thing, you know, it all depends on who's, I think the presumption was he said this and then, you know, and then Trump wanted to go after him for you know hunter and his sleazy business dealings and all that and aside from the fact that the press hates trump and wanted trump out and didn't want to you know help him second thing is what a terrible messenger for, for that level of accusation i mean this is like if trump's walking around saying you're not caesar's wife i'm sorry like he, he there are many things that he can do you know there are many lines that he can lines of attack that he can proffer this is not this is not the good this is not the best one for him. So right all the obsession, you know, that's that started the first impeachment which was getting getting Ukraine to, you know, getting Zelensky in Ukraine to hand them to to come up with a set of allegations or come up with a set of things that he could use against Joe. All that would have done effectively was to somehow neutralize Maybe Biden's attack on Trump's, um, you know, morals and ethics and and business behavior. It might have, but you know, that's a again. It's a, it was a bank shot unless there's more information that suggests that Joe was somehow the was was the Godfather, you know, marionetting Hunter and his brother and pulling the strings and getting a lot of money out of it. Can you imagine Hunter Biden getting indicted? Yeah, Talk about very easily. Never. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, so it's just like everything in our lives is something that never happened before. So now the president of the United States might have a son who was indicted by his own just by by the Justice Department that he oversees. Um, that's I mean, it's mind boggling. I mean, it's possible. That, it's, it's not exactly likely, though. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of smoke. Oh, and by the way, we should then also talk a little bit about how Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, uh, 
reversed field yesterday, gave an interview to the New York Times in which he said, no, the Trump prosecution for fraud and, you know, whatever criminal fraud is not over, even though the two guys I hired to, you know, that uh, Vance, my predecessor, hired to build the case resigned and discussed because I said I basically he must have told them they didn't have the goods. Um, he seems to have reversed field and said, no, no, we're still investigating it and we have new information and you blah, 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 blah. Um, anybody ha have any thoughts about that? I mean, it's like it's weird because I, I feel like we don't people like us who have already who have already started to discount the when you when when you're when you're not governed by the ideas and perspectives of the liberal media, the outrage in liberal media circles, the the pressure that is put on people in by liberal media circles is just much less. But if you're Alvin Bragg, the New York Times is like the sun, the moon and the stars. And if they keep publishing this stuff maybe the pressure on you just feels insanely intolerable and you just want to alleviate yeah. it any way you can. Well, that's a, that interview struck me as him sort of teasing that there was more when in fact, he really, he really didn't have anything new to say about the investigation, except that it was, you know, supposedly ongoing. I mean, it was very, uh, what he used to phrase, he's like, oh, I, I can't talk because of grand, grand jury secrecy rules, but there might be some new stuff. It's, it struck me as a, de a delaying tactic, something where he's like, get off my back. Uh, I know you want this, but we're not doing it, but he doesn't want to come out and say that it, it didn't strike me as he has something fresh and new and the investigation is ongoing and, and full of energy. That, that's what I thought. And, and I, I, I thought that basically uh, the indictment of the effort to indict Trump was extraordinary in the first place because what conceivable benefit could he gain with his constituency and with his with the public opinion in Manhattan and all that he works for say basically saying I don't want to prosecute what you brought me is not good enough for me to prosecute I mean there are only two possible one of which is you know Trump's got something on him right and the other is you know what this is a lousy case I, I you know I I can't this is the only thing that I'm going to be talking about for two years if you if we actually move to get these indictments and I, I don't like it and we're going to end up he's going to end up getting acquitted and then I'm going to look like an idiot and I didn't even start this in the first place that's a much more plausible scenario because what benefit he as we can see he got no benefit out of out of uh, the guys resigning because he had told them that the case they had was insufficient or that he didn't want to bring the charges to the grand jury um so and i'm just so thrilled that we live in a country where this is what we talk about in relation to the presidency now you know the last one corrupt this one corrupt everyone's look trump said everyone every everyone's everyone's corrupt so i get that was always his get out of jail free card and his explanation for why his conduct in 20 we you know why why he shouldn't be held liable or responsible by voters for his conduct when they were going to the polls in 2016 or going to the primary polls, which is everybody does it. Everybody does it. Come on, let's be honest about it. And if if Hunter Biden is not indicted, by the way, um, the, uh, the response from a huge part of the right will be because the FBI is corrupt. Um, and 
they have good reason. I'm sorry to say to to uh, at least have those suspicions, given the, the way the FBI had handled uh, Russiagate. So my question, this just occurs to me as we're talking. So aren't we on a, on a glide path toward a, not a throw the bums out thing, because throw the bums out is always like some kind of general yawp against, you know, politicians being lousy. But are we in for some kind of weird Jimmy Carter moment where it's like people are going to come out of nowhere in both these parties in 2024 saying as Trump sort of said, but of course it wasn't really true because he was an insider of all insiders, but like you people are all garbage. This is all garbage. It's been eight years of this garbage. You know, I'm a general, I've been working for, you know, I've basically been working for this country on a fixed salary for 27 years, defending the country uh, I believe in honor and duty and self-sacrifice. I'm just making this up, right? I mean, uh, you know, like I, it's enough already with this. Like, like I, you know, I don't want to try. I don't want to open the newspaper every morning or you know, open my computer every morning to another story about a, you know, a, a president, uh, you know, coming up with lies on a plane about a meeting he had with a Russian at Trump Tower. And I don't want to get up every morning to read about, you know. Uh, the son of the president, you know, getting five hundred thousand dollars for an for a painting that you know he might have been able to sell for seventy five dollars at the local art fair, uh, if his name weren't Hunter Biden. I mean, it does feel like something like that could happen. I don't know who it is. It could be in both parties. It's like enough. Like ich ew. You know, that was the sort of that was the post Watergate feeling. It was like like we've been just bathing in manure for like two and a half years. You can't take it anymore. You know, this Schmendrick from Georgia who said he'd never lie to me and, you know, said he, you know, did, did, you know, went to the Naval Academy and, you know, was an evangelical Christian and, you know, seemed seemed nice, had a young daughter and, you know, just seemed like a, a good guy. I guess, you know, I'll let me let's go with him. Anybody? Uh, it would be nice. I don't know. But, but part of the problem is that we're, we're at least half addicted to the manure now. Um, it's not it's not you know, it's yes, it's I don't know if it'd be but, nice, by the way, because Carter was, of course, a disastrous president. So it's not like it's not like that's some solution, you know, uh, you know, the Cincinnatus dropping his, you know, uh, letting go of his plow and, you know, coming back to, you know, be the moral uh, arbiter of, of, of the, of the city. There's a but hunger I mean, for that on the left though. Look at that reception that, that, that Obama got last week. I mean, we mentioned on the podcast earlier or this week when he came to the white house, there is clearly a hunger even among Democrats, because I think what Biden touted himself or was marketed as being, he has proven incapable of being as president. So that what people found appealing about him was that he was going to be the the uh, way that the palate cleanser after Trump, right? The guy who both knew how to do things, but also wasn't, you know, wasn't Trump and was normalcy and all these other things. And then he turns out to be as, you know, well, his family at least is, is 
potentially as corrupt as, as some of the things we looked at with Trump. And he's also just not effective. He's not competent in the in the role. So I don't know. I mean, I think that 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 all the staffers flocking to Obama this week was a sign of like, we just want someone who seemed to know what they were doing with the job. Now, of course, I would I don't think Obama did that great a job either. But right. There Emphasis is on seams. There, right. there wasn't exactly. a whole lot of competence out of that administration either. I think the, the value proposition from my perspective of a Biden presidency was that we would finally have a president after a decade and a half that didn't have a cult following around him, that there was no cult of personality around him because he was just not an interesting figure. I didn't command That's that kind point. of affection. Yeah. yeah. And what they want is, and to, to my dismay, everybody wants a cult in the White House. I mean, yeah, if what you want is a is a guy who gets elected uh, by a landslide margin in the first place loses 4 million votes in the second election, which is no, nowhere is, is not a landslide at all, and systematically destroys his party at the congressional, state, and local levels before he departs office after, after, eight, after eight years. Um, what a great cult. That's one that's one. Don't forget weakening cult. the U.S. on the world stage. You got to. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I'm not even talking substantively now about policy. I mean, you could have been talking about not dis- They Obama. might not agree with. I am talking about oh. Barack Obama. <laughs> you were talking about. Trump. I'm saying I'm saying they're like, oh, Obama. It's so great. He's back in the White House here. Let's have another Obama so that we will have 10 state legislatures as a, you know, I mean, people don't, just don't remember the wreckage that Obama left in his wake, you know, um, uh, I, I did a whole enumeration of this. I can't sort of pull it up out of my out of my head, but it's like there were, there were uh, 35 fires. Republican governors by 2016, where there had been 24 in 2009. There were 66 out of the 99 state legislatures in the United States were were had were majority uh, Republican by the end of Obama's tenure. More than a thousand legislative seats at the state, local, and national, uh, at the state and local levels, flipped from Democrat to Republican during the Obama presidency. He was, and he is personally responsible for Trump getting reelected for two, in two ways, one of which is he championed Hillary Clinton's candidacy, which, uh, which, uh, which uh, or a sane, rational politician would have noticed from about March 2015 onward was a very risky proposition that she was a bad candidate with a lot of baggage, that she had gone from 65% support to 40% support even before she had really started running. And and yet he still championed her and 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 uh and gave and because of the condition of the country after his presidency, he gave Trump, you know, the runway to you know, to to find the 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 invisible Trump voters and bring them to the polls and and get those eighty eight thousand votes he needed in the three states to to win the presidency. So you know, I wouldn't be so celebratory uh, if I were the White House staff and the people who were at the White House and all these uh, people talking about how nice it was to see Obama back. Given who Trump making is making incredibly dismissive jokes about the sitting president, by the way. Oh, Given- hello, Mr. Vice President. Just kidding. What? That's not appropriate. That was weird. I'm sorry. Yeah, those two were not the buddy comedy that they tried to pass off for eight years. I mean, people who. I was going to say, uh, given who Trump is, there's also a third way in which Obama is responsible for his presidency. 
um, in that he laid into him uh, elaborately at the White House correspondence dinner, right. um, making fun of him, saying, well, uh, at least I'm president. You'll never will be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, so let's step back for a second and let me talk to you about our friend David Bonson and his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Um, very impressive effort to collate uh, 250 commonsensical philosophical reasons that you should support the free market, that the free market is the moral framework for human flourishing, uh, and that the free market needs to be defended and, uh, and, and its interests advanced because left, left undefended, left uh, arguments, uh, arguments not being made uh, allows statists and others to advance, uh, to limit uh, economic freedom, which then limits human freedom. Uh, David uh, runs the Bonson Group. He's got $3.5 billion under management. He also has a fascinating long piece in National Review that came out yesterday, a primer on the Fed and inflation. Um, David is a strong believer that we that we are we are misunderstanding inflation, that inflation is the result of distortive behavior by the Federal Reserve Bank. It's not because of excessive federal spending or anything. It's much more about the 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 tools that the that the Fed has been using uh, in the, on, on the basis of a misunderstanding of the macroeconomic uh, circumstances uh, of the United States and the world. So you should go read that at National Review. You should subscribe to his newsletter, thedctoday.com, and you should go buy his book, 200, uh, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. That's David Bonson of the Bonson Group. And of course, where should you read 200, uh, there's no free lunch. You should read it in your X chair because when you sit in your X chair, you got dynamic variable lumbar support. You got the LMX temperature regulation that allows you to cool up the chair when you're cold, when you're, when you're hot or uh, cool down the chair when you're hot, heat up the chair when you're cold. Uh, it's the luxury supercar of office chairs and uh, high performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort, those are reasons to love any chair, and they are the particular reasons to love the X chair. Try it for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. Uh Let's talk about Obama and uh, some uh, crap that he's been spewing uh, in the last couple of days because it's very important in terms of trying to understand how we got to where we are in the current uh, world uh, catastrophic situation in Ukraine. Who, who wants to start? Who wants to start with what Obama said this week and then why it's such an outrage? 
Abe, you want to go? Tell you, okay. I was good. I'll tell you what he said. And then you guys okay. come because he was at a conference that was sponsored by jointly by the Atlantic and um, University of uh, Chicago about disinformation. So that there's a there's a whole layer of irony to this, actually. He was interviewed by Jeffrey Goldberg and he said and he was asked about Russia. And he said, as somebody who grappled with the incursion into Crimea, I've been encouraged by the European reaction because in 2014, I often had to drag them kicking and screaming to respond in ways we would have wanted to see. And that went unchallenged as a as a description of his uh, dealings with Russia during his presidency. Yeah, so um, the the revisionist history here is, is astounding. Um, you know, in a very general sense, of course, we remember that when Obama was when Mitt Romney was 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 running against Obama and Mitt Romney was talking about uh, Russia as the uh, I've actually forgot the exact term. The, the our, our main political foe. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, Obama made fun of this, uh, saying the 1980s wants its foreign policy back, and so on. But uh, when you drill down to the more specific things that Obama did vis-a-vis Russia, um, he was shockingly complacent, to say the least. Um, the first thing that occurred to me was that was the 2012 hot mic incident in which uh, Obama was caught uh, speaking to uh, Medvedev, Med- Medvedev, Medvedev. Who, was, who was nominally the head of state in Russia at the time. Right. That was uh, and, owing and to nominally, a little... as this as this anecdote indicates. So go on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Putin had arranged it until he could sort of extend his rule uh, indefinitely. And um, he was caught. Obama was caught on a microphone saying to Medvedev, um, look, on all these issues, but particularly missile defense. And this was at a time when uh, Poland and the Czech Republic where they, they wanted uh, missile defense assets uh, from the U.S. Um, to protect themselves against Russia. And um, uh, we were not uh, amenable to it. Um, or, we, or, or, or rather, we, the, the Obama was, on the face of it, um, somewhat amenable to it. But he said to Medvedev on the hot mic, on missile defense in particular, I need some space. This can all be worked out, but I need some space. I need some room. Uh, this was on the eve of uh, his reelection. And he said, this is my last election. After this election, there'll be space uh, you know, for me to sort of maneuver. And Medvedev said- uh, He said, I'll have more flexibility. I'll have more flexibility. Election. And Medvedev said, I understand. I will relay this to Vladimir. I will um, transmit this information. I will to transmit Vladimir. this. I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. After having it in front of me all morning, I, I, yeah. I'm now I'm just winging it. Um, which, what Obama, I, I don't know how to take this any other way, meant by this was, let me first convince the American voters that I'm going to be tough on you, and then after they buy it and reelect me, I'll 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 give you what you want. Okay, I got a history lesson here because this is all seared into my memory. <clears throat> I'm not sure about missile defense, true, in, in part also because this seems like general security guarantees to me. No, but he canceled. said particularly. He, he literally said, I understand he what he said. said yeah, so but they get, canceled so, missile interceptors and uh, radar. This is what I he care. said. I'm going to relay the entire history of this Don't because this is something it, very let's move on serious. From this. You want to make a point about it? I am. I'm about to. Okay. Go ahead. Missile interceptors 
and radar installations were canceled to Poland and Czech Republic in 2009. They were a dead issue. I'm not sure why they would even be brought up besides general security guarantees, which was a part of their negotiations over JCPOA. And JCPOA is the, the whole problem, the, 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 the start of, of, of our new security concerns with Russia and generally in the Middle East. But you can pinpoint the exact date at which point the world that we inherited from in the post 9-11 environment shifted over into a renewed great power competition. And it was September 10th, 2013. In the week preceding September 10th, 2013, there had been a chemical weapons attack in Syria and the environment, the information environment in this country was for intervention. And the Obama administration didn't want to intervene. So they set up a whole bunch of obstacles in their own path. They needed congressional approval for this sort of thing. Republicans were against it. Uh, Democrats were kind of squeamish about it. So he he was compelled to make an address to the nation that night in support of a uh, authorization for the use of force that they didn't want. And they spent the previous, the entire week, both lobbying Congress in favor of this and then going into the international community looking for an off ramp for some way out. And the way out that they found was provided by Moscow. Moscow said it would help its its ally in Syria, the Assad regime, uh, surrender its chemical weapons. And in the address to the nation, Barack Obama made a moral and strategic case for intervention. And at the very end of it, announced that they had reached this this um, revelatory agreement with Moscow that would save Obama from doing what he promised to do to enforce his own red line. And from there, we have the entire horrible new world that we have since inherited. Russia went into Syria, did not remove chemical weapons, but provided uh, the Assad regime with enough space to be able to crush resistance, the legitimate resistance against his government, gave ISIS a free hand in eastern Ukraine or eastern Syria, from which we got the invasion of Iraq, the decimation of the Iraqi security forces and the uh, subsequent reintroduction of American troops into Iraq that paved the way for Russian intervention in Syria in 2015 and for the dismemberment of Crimea and the Donbass in 2014 uh, and ushered in uh, the, uh, the the idea here that we would have a, a, a JCPOA that would be effective when all it did was postpone um, the uh, nuclearization and the achievement of a, fi- a fissionable device in Iran because they didn't actually take all the fissile material and they didn't dis- d- d- uh, dismantle the centrifuges. And from there, we get this axis today, the Iran, Syria, China, Iran, Russia, Chinese axis. And it all began on that night in September of September 10th, 2013, when Barack Obama faced the option of having to make good on his own promises, his own identification of what America's national security interests were and blinked and gave Russia a free hand in the process. I also want to add to the to the timeline as we as we uh, assess the the revisionism of the of the statement Obama made this week uh, that he he actually was interviewed in the Atlantic in the print magazine by Jeffrey Goldberg in 2016 and he was asked about Ukraine in particular and he said um, the articles like talking about Ukraine is a core Russian interest here's what Obama says uh, the fact is. Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia no matter what we do. So he was at, Goldberg says, I asked Obama whether his position on Ukraine was realistic or fatalistic. He said, it's realistic. This is an example of where we have to be very clear about what our interests are and what we're willing to go to war for. At the end of the day, there's always going to be some ambiguity. And I, and I thought it was very telling. Ambiguity was, was marketed to the American people as sophistication in Obama's foreign policy. And I think we actually are seeing the fall 
fallout of, of that right now. And as we've that seen, interview, that was neither that realistic interview, nor, uh, nor a, a rational assessment of America's interests, as Ukraine it, has demonstrated. In that interview, Obama said that his proudest moment as president was not, reinf- was not enforcing the red line. That was his proudest moment as president, that he had come up with this brilliant face-saving third-way strategy to get himself out of the pickle that he found himself in. The proudest moment of his presidency. So now it's 2022 and he's like, boy, it's really great that NATO is so is so unified. We don't even know what he's talking about when he said the other day that in 20, it was like dragging them, you know, to be support, you know, to be supportive. I think maybe he was talking about the Maidan revolution. That is the, that was the, you know, uh, the popular uprising in Kiev um, and elsewhere uh, after a, a corrupt election. Um, no, no, no. And it was it was a an agreement with the EU, a trade agreement with the EU that had been negotiated by the Ukrainian Rada, their parliament. Yanukovych, who was the pro-Russian president, just abrogated it outright, and the Rada subsequently uh, removed him from power. Uh, and then there right. was this revolt that turned very bloody and very violent quickly, and he was forced to uh, self-exile into Moscow. Right, but I'm talking about what Obama said when he said we had to drag the Europeans kicking and screaming into into some form of, um, you know, that's, the re- that, that's revisionism. I mean, well, yeah, no, but, but no, but he he did in what sense? In other words, we were supportive rhetorically and personally. Tori Newland, you know, brought cookies to the people in 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 the Maidan uh, as a you know uh, as a, a leading American official. Um, and the York, the, the the Europeans were were seemed to be somewhat happy to see the backside of Ukraine to the extent that they could. Like, fine, okay, Russia's making its move. Uh, you know, w- w- Russia's gas and oil are much more important to us than Ukraine's whatever is going on with Ukraine. Um, and so I think it's possible that what what we meant was that there wasn't there wasn't a sort of unified front, uh, you know, supporting the, you know, the, the democratic or populist revolt in, in, in Kiev then. Um, but, you know, he's got no business somehow taking credit for that because, you know, then, then again, then he went into Crimea, you know, and, and we did nothing. They were as accommodation as they possibly can. And it's true that, that Europe's reaction to the downing of MH17, for example, was more self-preservation and fear of conflict with Russia than what we're seeing today. So yeah, Europe was dragging its feet, but the White House didn't make any effort to drag them with them. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, it, it is just, uh, uh, Obama, Obama is a remarkable example of somebody whose, um, whose demeanor uh, masks a kind of self, is a, is of a piece with a level of self-regard that has an almost supernatural quality to it. Somehow the idea that he does X and Y happens in response, and therefore because Y happens in response, he has some role to play in Y, does not, is, is just absolutely absent from his understanding of, of, of who he is and what he does. Because you know, his intentions are good. So his intentions are good. And, and then, and then if he does things that have a more morally ambiguous frame, that's when in that Jeffrey Goldberg interview in 2016, he starts talking about how he's really a realist. 
he's a realist and there's it's all these fantasies the republicans have fantasies about this and my naive liberal friends who want responsibility to protect they have fantasies about that and you know sometimes you have to understand that this is the way the world works and amazingly the world always works exactly as he would wish it to at the moment that he has to you know the world is working like in the sense that his response to anything is the right response. Now, I mean, leaders have to think that, right? They can't con- constantly second guess their own choices and stuff like that. But it's now six or seven years later. And to hear him talking about how, well, we had this right all along, essentially, and the Europeans were wrong. And now we've got now now they're in a they're they're in a much better place. Really? I mean, is that you know, weren't you kind of leading them to believe that this was the future, that Russia's domination of Ukraine and 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 Russia's having a free hand uh, in the on the world stage because we could turn to them both to help in Syria and to help guarantee the the Iran nuclear deal. These well, what, two wait, things. What, is, what foreign policy preference did in his second term did he uh, pursue that wasn't realist? Because realism, as we've seen over the course of this conflict, fancies itself as some Hobbesian uh, acknowledgement of the immutability of human nature, and therefore we should just roll over in the face of aggression. Because aggression is inevitable, especially when strong powers want something, they're just willing to take it. And the realist prescription for the, the conflict in Ukraine would have been to allow Ukraine to be subsumed violently into the Russian sphere of influence. Because it's inevitable. This is just the way nations work. This is how they behave. And anything else is, is blinkered and ideological and, frankly, um, un, an unrealistic assessment of how geopolitics works. And that realist perspective has been proven to be inadequate to what we've, what we've seen. It doesn't explain what we've seen from the West. It doesn't explain how Ukraine has behaved. It doesn't explain really how Russia has behaved. It is, uh, it's a textbook analysis of geopolitics and human nature um, that doesn't match what we're seeing on the ground and is therefore not a very useful um, theory to explain the behavior that we're witnessing. And it, it very much is, is, is akin to what Barack Obama pursued in his presidency. Russia's a big power, they'll take what they want. Iran is a, uh, is a revisionist actor. We have to integrate them into the, into the global environment by giving them a lot of carrots and, um, and forestalling their, the inevitability of their nuclear ambitions, which are now, and we will never actually stop them from getting a nuclear bomb. All we can do is postpone it. This, these are raw realist calculations about how the world works that are contemptuous of ideological objectives, which have much grander ambitions and have proven in the Ukraine case to be achievable, feasible in ways that realists never gave them credit for. Uh, uh, by the way, just I, yeah, to, to beat up on Obama a little bit more, uh, this started before his presidency as Senator in 2005, he won $48 million in federal funding to help Ukraine destroy thousands of tons of guns and ammunition. Uh, he traveled to Donetsk in eastern Ukraine with then Indiana Republican Senator Dick Luger, touring a conventional weapon site. The two met in Kiev with President Viktor Yushchenko making the case that an existing cooperative threat reduction program covering the destruction of nuclear weapons should be expanded to include artillery, small arms, anti-aircraft weapons, and conventional ammunition of all kinds. After a stopover in London, the senators returned to Washington and declared that the U.S. 
should devote funds to speed up the destruction of more than 400,000 small arms, 1,000 anti-aircraft missiles, and more than 15,000 tons of ammunition. That's from the Daily Mail. Spirit of Kellogg brand lives. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think in the end, in the end, the point is that Obama wasn't a realist. I mean, by the way, a realist, just to give you an example, you know, a a realistic position would be whatever. I'm not going to give you an example. I was going to say like a realist position is... Yeah, so Mohammed bin Salman had had uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi killed in in the in the you know in in Turkey. Big deal. It's one guy. This is Saudi Arabia, most you know one of the most important countries in the world in terms of energy. Like, we're not going to pick a giant fight with this guy over this one journalist. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe he's not. Whatever. I never heard any democratic and re- any democratic realist. Uh, advance that argument after after all of this Jeffrey Goldberg slavering, you know, suck upery about how Obama's was really, you know, a very sophisticated guy who understood the way the world worked, uh, and we should all follow his follow his lead. But I, in the end, I don't think Obama was a realist. What Obama was was whatever I think I need at any given moment. Uh, uh, if I want to be, if I'm an idealist, because I need to be advancing my ideals, that's, I'm going to advance my ideals and then I'm a wonderful idealist. And if I don't want to do X, because I really want to focus on Y, then I'm a realist. I'm a realist. And therefore, you know, don't tell me that I need to, you know, involve myself in this to the extent that I need to involve myself in. I got other fish to fry. So that makes me a realist. He always struck me when describing in retrospect what what he'd done and why is being the, the classic joke about like, well, that's all well and good in practice. But what what does it look like in theory? Right. It's sort of they screw something up and then it's like, but actually we had a grand plan here it was we, we were just going along with this grand theory, which we're which we understand. But we didn't. It was too complicated and sophisticated to explain to all you people. So. Yeah, doesn't work when the historians start getting at your previous statements. I think that's why his remarks, his sort of offhand remark at this conference this week was so such a tell for people. It's like, wait a minute. And it didn't help that behind them on stage was this big sign about disinformation, which was kind of ironic. But uh, the revisionism doesn't stand when there's so many so many uh, moments during his presidency where he said the precise opposite. Um, Yeah. So. We'll leave you. We'll leave you with that. Good, good nostalgia fest here. Beating up on Obama. Very, very redolent of uh, of, a, of an earlier, simpler time in our life, in our lives before pandemics and things like that. So uh, I hope you all have a have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back to you on Monday for a Christina. No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.